what I plan to read for the occasion is uh, essentially the concluding half uh, of the final section of a longish memoir, uh, over 700 manuscript pages, uh, to be published next spring with the title Excerpts from Memory, or subtitle. I spent the better part of 14 months, uh, beginning two days before the 4th of July in 2003 and ending the day before my birthday, uh, 78th birthday, the year after, in 2004, sketching out, sometimes lightly, sometimes heavily, uh, fragments uh, of my life from memory, and indeed from my earliest memories. That was my agreement with myself for a beginning. Uh, regularly interspersed with present reflections uh, or perplexities, uh, often leaping around in time. Uh, when a few years later I felt inclined, uh, however nervously, to uh, face publication of the material, uh, I uh, took a year off, uh, well, a year uh, interrupted by other things, uh, as the original sketch was, uh, to add some historical uh, context and some explication and uh, a little, a little uh, friendly prose uh, to help a reader through uh, that work. From the beginning of the project, uh, which had to accommodate it, I've said, many interruptions, uh, I agreed with myself uh, on these beginning impressions, but I didn't know how the thing would end. Uh, and that was something that I had to uh, discover the sessions I used were uh, uh, over a span of those, two, those 14 months, something like 400 days. And I found that I uh, produced something uh, that lasted uh, about 200, about half of those days. Um, and though I went back, as I've said, to correct things, amplify things, and so forth, I never changed, oh, in order to keep myself honest, I dated the entries that I used on each day. And I agreed with myself that I'd write only when the, when the mood struck me and I thought I had something to say, and I'd quit uh, as soon as that had expressed itself. Uh, in order to keep myself honest about that agreement, um, I dated the entries. It's rather peculiar. And I saved them all the way through uh, and never changed a date, even when I, I dropped some. But uh, uh, even when I uh, uh, went back to edit and enhance them, if I could, uh, tonight's lecture will um, comprise eight, I think, maybe it's nine, uh, of these entries. Uh, since the dates are really there for ordering, not for identifying particular days. Well, I mentioned July the fourth and my birthday, but those are implicit and uh, early on. Uh, ap apart from that. Uh, I will uh, not name the date, but I will, at the breaks, just say break um, to help give a feel for why there's disjunction and uh, when you can see I'm laboring for there not to be much of a disjunction. Here we are. But actually, it was from the beginning of composing these excerpts from memory that I've increasingly had occasion to recognize that telling my life at any time takes on the texture of philosophizing about my life, quite as if the life and its intellectual reflection have, however unpredictable their journeys, perpetually required one another. So it's perhaps not entirely surprising that during last-minute preparations for my wife Kathleen's and my leaving for a summer weekend excursion to Martha's Vineyard to visit the family of our older son's fiancée, uh, that the text I took up at the last minute from one or another stack of unread books nagging my conscience to shove into my backpack together with the active notebook of my journal, was 
uh, Maurice Blanchot's The Writing of the Disaster, together with the current issues of the Times Literary Supplement, the New York Review of Books, along with my shaving kit and a pair of proper sandals in case there was a cocktail party obligatorily on the island, joined further with my medications featuring pills for high blood pressure and for cholesterol. Blanchot is the last of a string of French writers who had, as if all at once, attracted a dominating fascination for the minds of many advanced humanists, or perhaps rather anti-humanists, a fascination excluding, on the whole, most established philosophers in the English-speaking academic world for several decades after the 1960s. The last to have made his way to my table, in fact, was Blanchot. Why this late, almost accidental encounter, it happened when it did, and as it did, has various answers that I shall indicate. It's making its presence felt over these recent weeks, as I was composing this text, serves to remind me again that I'm trying to bring this project of remembering and memorializing to some mode of ending at the drift of time marking the completion of my writing, the claim for reason. Uh, why this was my, uh, uh, sorry, while this was my uh, fourth published book, completing it was why, uh, what did it take me four books in order to, uh, in order to find a time to end? Uh, the first of the books, the first of my writing, that seemed to me uh, to give confidence that my writing had open paths on which it would find ways to continue. The moment was the late 1970s, that beginning, which is to say during the peak of the academic reception of that new sequence of French thinkers, a generation or so after the reception of Sartre and de Beauvoir, Merleau-Ponty, Lévi-Strauss, on North American shores. I've said very little over the years explicitly about the effect of that later reception on my consciousness of my writing, beyond suggestion that I know and admire considerably more of it than colleagues of mine tend to know who deplore it, while far less of it than those who live upon it. Names here beyond Blanchot are anything but unfamiliar, Lacan, Derrida, Christophe, Foucault, Hélène Sixou. The difficulty, uh, I don't know whether you say Sixous or not, uh, the difficulty of conversation over the ensuing Anglo-American, French-German, divide of philosophical temperaments is something I've characterized through identifying what I call the two myths of reading in preparation for philosophical writing. According to one myth, the serious philosopher must have read or seemed to have read virtually everything, at least the whole of Western philosophy broadly conceived. According to the other myth, the philosopher will have or may wish to seem to have read essentially nothing, and then impertinently. In the 20th century, hi, thank you, uh, just, just how I feel about that. Sorry, now I'm, uh, in my happiness I've lost my place, but in the 20th century, uh, Heidegger was an exemplar of the former myth, reading everything, uh, Wittgenstein of the latter, nothing whose investigations quotes or alludes to half a dozen famous philosophical names, 
but in such a way as to imply that a particular passage has just happened to cross his mind or perhaps been cited to him, uh, an implication that is compatible with his never having read all the way through one complete text. And sometimes Wittgenstein cites a quotation from a conversation or a discussion, real or imagined, whose source remains anonymous. Break. Early in the writing of the disaster, Blanchot opts etymologically, hence metaphysically, sometimes distrusting this Heideggerian conjunction, but generally admitting its appeal uh, for the significance of disaster, the English word, as, well, not just English, as marking our being dissociated or disconnected or disengaged from the pertinence of the stars, rather than, as a dictionary will tend to give it, the exclusive inflection of ill-starred, which is to say, catastrophically unlucky, evidently as applied to some individual or communal project. For Blanchot, a disaster is now revealed metaphysically to be the condition in him of human existence, marked by the whole release from our ties to the heavens, from our attempted steps beyond our lives. I had read Blanchot somewhat earlier, Le Pas Au-delà. That's, again, something I don't do. Do you, do you elide the, the, the pas, the S in pas? Um, uh, I'll come to the meaning of those words in a second. Uh, I read that uh, text of Blanchot's uh, on a returning flight from Paris. Uh, it's a title insisting on the pun in pas as meaning both step and not published in English with the title The Step Not Beyond, Le Pas Au-delà. That's a fair solution, uh, but it may leave out the disappointment or trauma in the negation of progress, as though the human step now just empirically, even if inevitably, falls short. I therefore tried out for myself saying The Non-Step Beyond, as an uglier but perhaps more serviceable translation Uh, emphasizing the aspect of an oblivion of the transcendental draw of our words, marking the openness of our concepts, the ungrasped, hence records an essential contradiction between aspects that constitute language, namely between the facility of saying uh, what we mean and the inevitability of saying more, hence other than we mean. As though the possession of language forms as great a curse as a blessing in the creation of the human. These aspects may be understood of, of facility and inevitably exceeding uh, one's sense, uh, may be understood as the principal contestants in the philosophical struggles portrayed in Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations. Would Blanchot still have in mind a line from Beckett's Endgame from four decades earlier, I can't go on, I'll go on. I confess that I've also thought in this connection of moments in Wittgenstein's investigations, for example, now I know how to go on, is an exclamation. This is still quoting Wittgenstein. It corresponds to an instinctive sound, a glad start. Of course it does not follow from my feeling that I shall not find I am stuck when I do try to go on, unquote. Some 200 sections earlier, Wittgenstein had taken the human gait of walking as an allegory of the ability to philosophize. 
He says, we've got onto slippery ice where there is no friction, and so in a certain sense the conditions are ideal. But also, just because of that, we are unable to walk. We want to walk, so we need friction. Back to the rough ground. That was Wittgenstein. And 80 sections still earlier, near the beginning of the book, Wittgenstein cites walking as a fundamental example of what he calls our natural history, along with eating, drinking, playing, and with our familiar modes of speech, from commanding to chatting. To suggest some general dysfunction with human walking will accordingly suggest something unnatural overtaking the human life form. This is all metaphorical, of course. The metaphysical disaster that Blanchot perceives as having overtaken the human may be, I gather, manifested in human-driven yet absolute catastrophes, ones that perhaps we can say suffocate the imagination of God. Catastrophes named, for example, the Gulag, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Then the state of starless human action had evidently not widely been understood in the United States to have come to pass by the time Charlotte Vale proposed in the film Now Voyager, played by Betty Davis in 1942, in the film's once famous closing lines, let's not ask for the moon, we have the stars. Now that we have the stars and have lost the stars, we, some of us, ask for the moon, and since we don't get it, Uh, There are or were plans being made to travel there again, announced to some scientific puzzlement by the former president of the United States as a national priority. I'm struck by Blanchot's sense of the fatefulness in relating the metaphysical and the ordinary, a relation I once pictured in an essay on the investigations, uh, as the facing shores guiding and carved by the river of philosophy. In Le Paz la the perpetual facing of the metaphysical and the ordinary is key in Blanchot's interpretation of Nietzsche's eternal return and in his refusal of Hegelian synthesis as the step beyond thesis and antithesis. There are, as it were, only the continuing, alternating steps between. Each of these touchstones of thinking in Nietzsche and in Blanchot bears a working relation to the way I find myself reading Wittgenstein's investigations. Ideas of return and of turn and of the shunning of philosophical theses are perpetual and fundamental in the procedures of the investigations. Quoting it, what we do is return words from their metaphysical to their everyday use. And again, our investigations must be turned around the fixed point of our real need. And elsewhere, simply and roughly, I do not wish to advance theses in philosophy. That was, those three were from the investigations. My emphasis on the first two of these Wittgensteinianisms has, I know, been found excessive. An implication of them is that our everyday lives are lived in exile from our words, turned from them, from the implications of our lives, becoming strangers to ourselves, or rather, since finding ourselves strange might be liberating, shunning ourselves. A symptom of our being lost to ourselves, without points of guidance, philosophy demonstrates in Wittgenstein's words that we do not know our way about. 
that inspires Wittgenstein to philosophy, is that we seek a transcendent rescue in or from our words. Wittgenstein perceives this as our all but unappeasable yearning to speak outside language games, as he says, as if this were to work ourselves free of dictation or from being cursed. The last of my trio of quotations from the investigations concerning Wittgenstein's declaration that he wishes not to advance theses is still impatiently found by many philosophers to be plainly false. It's not easy to understand how Wittgenstein could be wrong by so plain a matter about himself. Well, but uh, doesn't Wittgenstein assert, advance as a thesis, that the meaning is the use, say, and assert that we need external criteria for internal processes, and assert, is it a hypothesis, that there is no one internal process that is, for example, expecting someone, and assert, isn't it a hypothesis, that a lot of different things may be called reading, and how about the human body is the best picture of the human soul? Wonderful set of words, but is it a thesis, an assertion, an opinion accessible as true or false. It can seem that Wittgenstein wants to prevent us from saying or maintaining certain things, especially the very truest things, as, for example, I know the world exists. Something he undoubtedly asks is that you identify the state of the person to whom you might seriously undertake to tell such a thing as that the world exists, one whom you suppose needs to be informed of such a thing. In my case, reasonably early in starting to attend philosophy courses, I report that I felt imposed upon by being told or by being asked to accept as true of me that I believe the world exists. For example, that this piece of paper, that chair, these hands, all surely exist. But of course, I also felt that I had no right uh, to take my, or all things, sorry, that I surely believe to exist is not that true. I report, uh, uh, sorry, I felt I had no right to take uh, my superficial, insufficiently philosophical feeling seriously, uh, combating centuries, so it seemed, of sophistication with a limited world filled mine with ignorance. What was true then, as now, uh, is that the following question demands a serious response. If it is forced, intellectually violent, to say here and now, in the safe haven of, perhaps, a lecture room, uh, that I believe this room exists, and also these sheets of paper and these chairs occupied and empty. If asserting such matters does not express the fact of my relation to things and persons, what does express that relation? A possible reaction might be, what indeed? What one concept that could be expected to be meant to be, really believed to be, uh, expressive of such relations? Or are such questions merely evasions? Such theses as Wittgenstein renounces, as when G.E. Moore held up and waved his hand and asserted, I know this hand exists, and uh, uh, Moore's uh, exclamation in seriousness has been exp- enacted for me rather in large numbers, especially when we received uh, English philosophy uh, during the time of J.L. Austin and uh, Wittgenstein. So fairly early in my life with philosophy, 45, 50 years ago, everybody would imitate 
um, Moore, and they, philosophers do that. They don't write very much, so they imitate things. Uh, to, uh, sorry. Seeking to inform us of what cannot be news to us, to him, uh, to supply us with something we cannot simply lack, something which is a part of the common inheritance of those you would address, as it is part of yours, then how can we so easily be distanced from our common inheritance? What anxiety is stirred that prompts one to test this sample of the common, to insist upon it? Speaking absolutely, or attempting to speak outside language games, as Wittgenstein put, asserts what cannot exactly be said and meant. Of course not, since it's outside what language allows us exactly to be said and meant. In asserting what cannot fail to be known, what have we gained? In denying what cannot be denied to be known, what have we lost? It's as if we are equally petrified or fixated, stunned, are images that recur in my study of skepticism uh, in the claim of reason, by our possession as well as by our disposition and dispossession of knowledge. Imagine then my surprise or alarm when after some days of inching my way through the writing of the disaster, I came upon Blanchot speaking of what he calls a horror of knowledge. This book of his was published the year after my claim of reason, 1979. I had explicitly noted in the margins of of Blanchot's early translated pages the idea traced in that book of mine of interpreting the avoidance of the knowledge of a human other as a premonition of encountering horror. My note proved to be a fair anticipation of what would follow in Blanchot's reflections. Such anticipations are, of course, not unfamiliar. Writers one cares about have this knack of seeming to anticipate one's secrets, as Emerson everywhere insists they do. What could be more common than a young, ambitious writer who has not had a real say yet, feeling that he or she has been, or seeing that she or he has has been, anticipated. It is a tender banality. I make a point here of claiming my own anticipation of a phrase of Blanchot's because in this memoir of mine, generally anticipating the ending of my life, I am becoming free, or freer than ever, of the desire to persuade. It is a related, not identical point. Uh, When I put into question the traditional epistemologist's notion that in examining the basis of my conviction in the existence of the world, uh, I am examining my beliefs about the world. It is from such a misapprehension that Austin and the later Wittgenstein, in their faithfulness to the ordinary, are interpreted as writing in support of common sense beliefs. How uninteresting could that be? Whatever these may be, one of them is not the belief or opinion, or bet, or shrewd suspicion, or thesis, that there is a world, and I and others in it. In Hume's remarkable study of the argument from design, I seem to recall, Hume proposes that someone may take our world to be the botched and discarded world of an inferior god. If this can count as a belief, it's not likely to be a common one. My sense is that Blanchot could encourage me to epitomize this insight, namely that my relation to the world is not one of belief, but of something far more intimate and intricate. Um, Could uh, phrase my sense of the existence of the world 
as something that is incredible. So when Wittgenstein sets out on the trail of the distortion, that is the violence, in saying of the tree in front of me that I know it is there, uh, in a book on certainty, he, he can devote, of course you all know these things, how many times can a philosopher come upon such amazing things to say as, as to doubt. Um, something that um, those of us who, have, who do this, this sort of thing for a profession, or I, at least I never get tired of trying to describe um, the stunning, the amazement and so forth of climbing into, allowing yourself um, to get into the position of being uh, philosophically wondering in those ways and of how hard it is, if you've done that, to get out of it. <laughs> yes, so when Wittgenstein sets out on, on the distortions in trying to record the fact that I know there's a tree in front of me, um, the reg- it's, it's neither certain, I say, uh, one could say it's neither certain nor uncertain. It's beyond or beneath or before the possibility of certitude. The register in which I might say such things and answer them uh, is perhaps what Blanchot means by the neutral. It's the register I take Wittgenstein to wish to discover in saying, quoting him, one might also give the name philosophy to what is possible before, Wittgenstein italicizes, before all new discoveries and inventions, unquote. So Wittgenstein, I repeat this because I'm going to make an outrageous claim about it. Uh, One might also, this is Wittgenstein, give the name philosophy to what is possible before all new discoveries and inventions. So then I'm saying Wittgenstein conceives his discovery of the grammar of a language to be continuing maps of what we can recognize as the a priori. Uh, A well-known problem in philosophy, and I'm very glad to have solved it finally. Break. But when I arrive at Blanchot's formulation of a horror of understanding, do I look for a difference here from the claim to knowledge? The shift or uneasiness might have been in response to my interest in finding that, unlike what I know of his peers in the remarkable string of decades of French thought since the 60s, Deleuze, Derrida, Foucault, and so on, and their immediate predecessors, Bataille, for example, Blanchot is impressed by a certain standing of skepticism, unlike uh, some of them. Um, and particularly in relation, I'm still speaking of him, uh, to a remark I've recently found in Levinas, quoting Levinas, language is in itself already skepticism, unquote. Skepticism might then be conceived to be a response to the horror of knowledge, of being forced to know what cannot be born. Classically or post-classically, I mean from the time of Descartes, when skepticism is no longer as it was in the ancient world, a way of life, something to be achieved through spiritual exercise, skepticism becomes a possible intellectual fate that must be warded off, to be managed by argument or by distraction, since the world is, after all, supposed to be abjectly subject to human knowledge, as modern science is supposed to show. But then something further happened to the world, something that not simply challenges the human capacity to know, but let's say mocks the desire to know. 
It is accordingly a kind of second fall of man and woman, this time out of no garden. Nietzsche called what happened the death of God. Blanchot, I'm supposing, calls something comparable the disaster. I have for half a century expressed what happened to the modern world to be the new advent of skepticism itself, most famously in Descartes, as something to defeat, perhaps with God's intervention, marking a new departure of the human, inherently at odds with itself, beyond itself. But in its role in Blanchot, reconsidering or reconstituting uh, Nietzsche's madman's warning against the knowledge he brings, namely warning that the knowledge is on its way, hence that he is that we are premature, skepticism might be pressed to serve as a welcome protection against knowledge for which we are unprepared, for which no one could be prepared, namely the cost of surviving the disaster, of living in an aftermath, in a devastation. Break. I say Blanchot is considering or reconsidering this announcement, but what if disaster means to us is being, sorry, if what disaster means to us is being separated from the star, continuing uh, with Blanchot, the decline which characterizes disorientation when the link with fortune from on high is cut, unquote. Then I suppose it follows as part of the disaster that consideration is no longer a usable mode of thought. Consideration, invoking the sidereal, speaks of a careful attention to the framework of the stars, and Blanchot tells us that the bearing of stars no longer holds for us. Yet if there is now no sidereal orientation, there is still the alternation of day and night, hence the dawn that Emerson and Thoreau and Nietzsche propose for our orientation or renewal. Thoreau notes, there is more day, there is more day to dawn. This is not something to be counted on. Thoreau says it's up to, an- to us to anticipate dawning. That's given me uh, a lot of trouble going to sleep sometimes, that idea. Because Blanchot's recognition of the horror of knowledge does not come up until page 82 of the writing of the disaster, it took me days to arrive at it, at the pace I usually walk around pages that are breaking new ground for me. Unlike the writing of Emerson and Thoreau, Uh, which can seem always to be or to come to an end. These writers accept death into their prose. Blanchot's writing seems to me, rather, to be all but paralyzed with the fear that it will not be able to go on or to begin again. I suppose this is a hazard of Blanchot's ways of emphasizing the fragment as challenger of the philosophical system, or, as he also puts it, of philosophical order. It's equally part of the later Wittgenstein's achievement to lead thought perpetually to an end, to achieve what he calls peace or rest, however momentary, which plainly acknowledges death. It strikes me as the reverse of Derrida's writing, whose astounding fluency seems not to describe what what Freud calls a detour to death, but a wager with it, say a perpetual double or nothing, as if the end, undefinable, since it can look very like its beginning, may be permanently or each time deferred. Now a whole further line of issue crops up. 
The mode of thinking I'm calling consideration, placing a constellation of ideas within whatever other constellations you divine, not with the idea of choosing one over the other, but of expanding each inflected by the other, combining equations, say, seems to me something Blanchot means to capture in his idea of the neutral, uh, saying neither yes nor no to a proposal, particularly a proposal of one's own. I often characterize this as speaking without assertion, said otherwise without attempting to advance theses, said otherwise without violence intellectually. I think this is the right mode. We're talking philosophy here. It's not the only way to speak here. I think this is the right mode in which to respond to an early question of mine in Walden uh, concerning Thoreau's notable placements of the word interest. Thoreau stresses the sense of this word of maintaining oneself between and experience and in given interpretation of it. As in, quoting Thoreau, it was easy to see that there would, that they, sorry, it is easy to see that they would part at the first interesting crisis in their adventures, unquote, which is late in Walden's opening chapter. My question here is whether this teasing conjunction of interest with crisis elucidates the idea of unattachments, as in translations of the Bhagavad Gita. I might further reduce here the question whether Wittgenstein's idea of returning, namely his perpetual returning of words to themselves, is an instance of how Blanchot adapts Nietzsche's idea of eternal return. The need for some such idea showed up early in my reading of philosophical investigations in my insistence that the return of words is not as to a place, or if so, then to one in which we have always and never existed. Break. I do not know if I shall eventually continue with Blanchot far enough to speculate usefully on whether his idea of the neutral puts into consideration Emerson's account in self-reliance of the young boy's capacity to speak out of what Emerson names the boy's neutrality, a capacity which the step into responsible adulthood customarily deprives us of forever, where we begin to take positions. I feel I'm not prepared at this stage of recounting to take much of a further step beyond the shores I've so far scraped through, but I must pause to record a lovely discovery in the past year or so. Like so many I value, it is one that's come to me terribly, I dare say shamefully, belatedly. Namely, the discovery that Proust, in the preface to his early translation of John Ruskin's The Bible of Amiens, the Bible of Amiens being the church of Amiens, of course, uh, quotes a sentence from, the, uh, from Emerson's late essay, Civilization, Ruskin quotes the sentence, uh, whose subject is evidently our needing to be reminded of our relation to what in reading Wittgenstein's investigations I have called the farther shore of human existence and its language. Civilization is the essay in which Emerson eventually announces the central focal image of his text in his summary words, Hitch Your Wagon to a Star. Proust responds to Emerson's point, if not quite his method, accurately and richly. Quoting Proust, I did look up, tried to look up, whether Emerson actually was the inventor of those words. As far as I could tell, he was. Proust responds to Emerson's point, not quite his method, I'm saying, uh, richly. Quoting Proust, 
in such a cathedral as that at Amiens, men of the 13th century came to seek a teaching which, with a useless and bizarre luxury, wonderful uh, Proust, it continues to offer it in a kind of open book, written in a solemn language where each letter is a work of art, a language no longer understood, giving it meaning less literally religious than during the Middle Ages, or even aesthetic meaning only, you have been able, nevertheless, you, the reader, uh, to, relate it, to relate it to one of those feelings that appear to us as the true reality beyond our lives. To one of those, here Proust puts a quotation mark, to those stars to which it is well that we hitch our wagon. Un- unquote. Within uh, and final quote from Proust. Whether these words taken from Emerson uh, were already famous in 1910 when Proust made his Ruskin translation or whether Proust marked its distinction for himself are to my mind equally credible possibilities. Others have glossed Emerson's phrase to suggest the effort of aiming high or thinking big. Such ideas capture a certain picture of what Emerson may be taken popularly to urge But in the essay that his star-hitching phrase epitomizes, its direction of action, of passion, is something like the reverse. Alerting us to the task of, let's say, receiving high, uh, accepting high, suggesting modesty, uh, hitching uh, a wagon, after all, is a modest idea, as well as magnificence, scanning a starless sky, the power invoked is not that of leading but of being drawn beyond what we understand ourselves to have achieved. Thoreau comparably describes one of his tasks as listening for what is in the wind and another as having failed to see truly the light in which he hoed his beams. And what I realize now is that I left out something in summarizing the opening description uh, of what I was going to read, a rather important moment. which I interrupt myself in order to say. Here I am saying that I'm reading from an autobiography and I've said practically nothing uh, about the empirical facts of my life. The full 700 pages does say quite a lot about the uh, facts of my life, but the idea of this final chapter that I'm reading is that the idea should, uh, is that the, 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 the prose, the tone, the fact of it, should show where all that was leading. Um, All those odd facts shared with practically everybody um, and uh, in different different combinations. And what it should show uh, is that, after all, uh, what I do is give philosophy lectures for a living. And I'm not exactly giving a philosophy. And we end there, uh, and it was supposed to be a seamless continuation of these chronological things, and we arrive at a stasis. but uh, the, these, uh, it's not, of course, exactly a philosophy lecture. I sort of think of it as a kind of dream of a philosophy lecture, uh, bound of a kind that I give, um, which other people won't call a philosophy lecture. But it goes from thing to thing as I want it to do. And I'm brave enough or silly enough uh, or both uh, to suppose that in the long run it all adds up to something. Uh, but that's what's going on here. I'm vaguely remembering, perhaps as after having had a couple of drinks, what it's like to talk to a group of students. 
A recurrent image of mine intrudes again just here, hiding among these high-minded sheaves of thoughts. Soon after I moved back to teach at Harvard in 1963, I would appear at Boston's Logan Airport every Friday and Sunday afternoons, either to travel to and back from New York to be with my daughter Rachel, then six years old, or later in the year to meet her plane from New York and the one to take her back as she increasingly spent weekends with me in Cambridge. Logan Airport was at that period continually under reconstruction, primarily undergoing expansion in order to accommodate the heavy requirements of the new jumbo jet planes. Uh, uh, walking one late weekend afternoon through the main tunnel at Logan Airport and out into the temporary plywood line uh, covered walkways leading to a bank of unfinished and distant new gates opening upon far wider and longer runways, a distinctive, unmistakable aroma all at once attracted my attention and came to me as archaically familiar as from my early childhood, yet one whose source I could not identify at once. On the late airport afternoon that I recall now, an image crossed my mind of an early evening in my native town of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, when I was five or six years old, sitting in the back seat of my mother's Chevrolet as my mother and I were headed down a long slope ending at a thoroughfare that constituted one of the familiar approaches to our house on the south side of Atlanta, a neighborhood then mostly Jewish, uh, now mostly black, a familiar development that in the United States sometimes counts as progress. As we slowed down for the red light at the bottom of the slope in this Chevrolet, I was interested in a horse-drawn wagon, uh, neither an unprecedented nor exactly a common sight around 1932, pulled over against the near curb of the thoroughfare perpendicular to the one to our descent uh, into which I knew we would be turning. At the back of the wagon, featuring what I recognized as a burning brownish-yellow kerosene lamp hanging from one of the rear posts which secured the unpainted, uneven wooden planks uh, constituting the wagon's side panels, an old man, lit by the lamp, was lifting into his rig a nondescript and heavily packed burlap bag. As the signal light turned green, we eased at arm's length around the man and his wagon for our right turn into the thoroughfare. My back window uh, must have been open, recalling the strength of the aroma given off by the wagon's lamp as we moved past. That distinct aroma catching my attention, walking in the Boston airport just over 30 years later, was unmistakably the same as that of that old man's lamp, unmistakably, therefore, that of kerosene. The word came just before my memory of having heard that jet airplanes were run on a fuel derived from kerosene. So the vehicle of this old man's laborious trade, whatever it was, was lit by the same substance that fires our newly accustomed means of unearthly flight. May I consider that memorable wagon to be hitched to these new rising and lowering sky objects? For surely Emerson's version of hitch hitching is only metaphorical, only. How shall we then understand the literal or actual truth of such world historical connections? Break. Sorry. It is easy to see that they would part at the first interesting crisis in their adventures, unquote, which is late in Walden's opening chapter. 
My question here is whether this teasing conjunction of interest with crisis elucidates the idea of unattachments, as in translations of the Bhagavad Gita. I might further reduce here the question whether Wittgenstein's idea of returning, namely his perpetual returning of words to themselves, is an instance of how Blanchot adapts Nietzsche's idea of eternal return. The need for some such idea showed up early in my reading of philosophical investigations in my insistence that the return of words is not as to a place, or if so, then to one in which we have always and never existed. Break. I do not know if I shall eventually continue with Blanchot far enough to speculate usefully on whether his idea of the neutral puts into consideration Emerson's account in self-reliance of the young boy's capacity to speak out of what Emerson names the boy's neutrality, a capacity which the step into responsible adulthood customarily deprives us of forever, where we begin to take positions. I feel I'm not prepared at this stage of recounting to take much of a further step beyond the shores I've so far scraped through, but I must pause to record a lovely discovery in the past year or so, Uh, Like so many I value, it is one that's come to me terribly, I dare say shamefully, belatedly. Namely, the discovery that Proust, in the preface to his early translation of John Ruskin's The Bible of Amiens, uh, the Bible of Amiens being the church of Amiens, of course, uh, quotes a sentence from from Emerson's late essay, Civilization. Ruskin quotes the sentence. Uh, whose subject is evidently our needing to be reminded of our relation to what, in reading Wittgenstein's investigations, I have called the farther shore of human existence and its language. Civilization is the essay in which Emerson eventually announces the central focal image of his text in his summary words, Hitch your wagon to a star. Proust responds to Emerson's point, if not quite his method, Accurately and richly. Quoting Proust, I did look up, tried to look up, whether Emerson actually was the inventor of those words. As far as I could tell, he was. Proust responds to Emerson's point, not quite his method, I'm saying, uh, richly. Quoting Proust, uh, in such a cathedral as that at Amiens, men of the 13th century came to seek a teaching which, with a useless and bizarre luxury, wonderful, Proust. It continues to offer it in a kind of open book, written in a solemn language where each letter is a work of art, a language no longer understood, giving it meaning less literally religious than during the Middle Ages, or even aesthetic meaning only. You have been able, nevertheless, you, the reader, uh, to, relate it, to relate it to one of those feelings that appear to us as the true reality beyond our lives, to one of those Here Proust puts a quotation mark. To those stars to which it is well that we hitch our wagon. Unquote. Within, uh, and final quote from Proust. Whether these words, taken from Emerson, uh, were already famous in 1910, when Proust made his Ruskin translation, or whether Proust marked its distinction for himself, are to my mind equally credible possibilities. Others have glossed Emerson's phrase to suggest the effort of aiming high or thinking big. Such ideas capture a certain picture of what Emerson may be taken popularly to urge, 
But in the essay that his star-hitching phrase epitomizes, its direction of action, of passion, is something like the reverse. Alerting us to the task of, let's say, receiving high, uh, accepting high, suggesting modesty, uh, hitching uh, a wagon, after all, is a modest idea, as well as magnificence, scanning the starless sky, the power invoked is not that of leading, but of being drawn beyond what we understand ourselves to have achieved. Thoreau comparably describes one of his tasks as listening for what is in the wind, and another as having failed to see truly the light in which he hoed his beams. And what I realize now is that I left out something in summarizing the opening description uh, of what I was going to read, a rather important moment, uh, which I interrupt myself in order to say. Here I am saying that I'm reading from an autobiography, and I've said practically nothing uh, about the empirical facts of my life. The full 700 pages does say quite a lot about the uh, facts of my life, but the idea of this final chapter that I'm reading is that the idea should, uh, is that the, 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 the prose, the tone, the fact of it, should show where all that was leading. Um, all those odd facts shared with practically everybody. Um, and uh, in, different, in different combinations. And what it should show uh, is that, after all, uh, what I do is give philosophy lectures for a living. And I'm not exactly giving a philosophy. And we end there. Uh, and it was supposed to be a seamless continuation of these chronological things. And we arrive at a stasis. Uh, but uh, the, these, uh, it's not, of course, exactly a philosophy lecture. I sort of think of it as a kind of dream of philosophy lecture. Uh, bound of a kind that I give, um, which other people won't call a philosophy lecture, but it goes from thing to thing as I want it to do, and I'm brave enough or silly enough uh, or both uh, to suppose that in the long run it all adds up to something. Uh, but that's what's going on here. I'm vaguely remembering, perhaps as after having had a couple of drinks, what it's like to talk to a group of students. A recurrent image of mine intrudes again just here, hiding among these high-minded sheaves of thoughts. Soon after I moved back to teach at Harvard in 1963, I would appear at Boston's Logan Airport every Friday and Sunday afternoons, either to travel to and back from New York to be with my daughter, Rachel, then six years old, or later in the year to meet her plane from New York and the one to take her back as she increasingly spent weekends with me in Cambridge. Logan Airport was at that period continually under reconstruction, primarily undergoing expansion in order to accommodate the heavy requirements of the new jumbo jet planes. Uh, uh, walking one late weekend afternoon through the main tunnel at Logan Airport and out into the temporary plywood line uh, covered walkways, leading to a bank of unfinished and distant new gates, opening upon far wider and longer runways, a distinctive, unmistakable aroma all at once attracted my attention and came to me as archaically familiar as from my early childhood, yet one whose source I could not identify at once. On the late airport afternoon that I recall now, an image crossed my mind 
of an early evening in my native town of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, when I was five or six years old. Sitting in the back seat of my mother's Chevrolet, as my mother and I were headed down a long slope ending at a thoroughfare that constituted one of the familiar approaches to our house on the south side of Atlanta, a neighborhood then mostly Jewish, uh, now mostly black, a familiar development that in the United States sometimes counts as progress. As we slowed down for the red light at the bottom of the slope in this Chevrolet, I was interested in a horse-drawn wagon, uh, neither an unprecedented nor exactly a common sight around 1932, pulled over against the near curb of the thoroughfare perpendicular to the one to our descent uh, into which I knew we would be turning. At the back of the wagon, featuring what I recognized as a burning brownish-yellow kerosene lamp hanging from one of the rear posts which secured the unpainted, uneven wooden planks uh, constituting the wagon's side panels, an old man, lit by the lamp, was lifting into his rig a nondescript and heavily packed burlap bag. As the signal light turned green, we eased at arm's length around the man and his wagon for our right turn into the thoroughfare. My back window uh, must have been open, recalling the strength of the aroma given off by the wagon's lamp as we moved past. That distinct aroma catching my attention, walking in the Boston airport just over 30 years later, was unmistakably the same as that of that old man's lamp, unmistakably, therefore, that of kerosene. The word came just before my memory of having heard that jet airplanes were run on a fuel derived from kerosene. So the vehicle of this old man's laborious trade, whatever it was, was lit by the same substance that fires our newly accustomed means of unearthly flight. May I consider that memorable wagon to be hitched to these new rising and lowering sky objects? For surely Emerson's version of hitch hitching is only metaphorical, only. How shall we then understand the literal or actual truth of such world historical connections? Break. The possibility and necessity of making oneself understandable is the subject of Friedrich Schlegel's still surprising essay, always, so far as I know, translated as On Incomprehensibility, or the Unverständlichkeit, a smooth translation, uh, incomprehensibility, disguising the fact that the German root for intelligibility, unlike the Latin, is harped on by Emerson, whose self-reliance, I simply assume, in its harping on understanding, or rather on non-understanding, assumes Schlegel's essay. Both Schlegel and Emerson, I cannot but imagine, are mocking the self-assurances of Locke's essay concerning human understanding and Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding and Leibniz's new essays on human understanding. In his essay, Schlegel attributes the general lack of understanding to the lack of an ear for ironies of various kinds. I adduce a further irony, or I guess an inside joke, in noting that Derrida's attack homage concerning Austin on the performative utterance, uh, with Derrida's signature event, with the title, signature event, context, in its opening question alludes to, all but repeats in Derrida's accent, the opening sentence of the second paragraph of Schlegel's On Incomprehensibility. Here's Schlegel. Of all things that have to do with communicating ideas, 
What could be more fascinating than the question of whether such communication is actually possible? Unquote. And here is Derrida. Is it certain that to the word communication corresponds a concept that is unique, univocal, rigorously controllable, and transmittable, in a word, communicable? Unquote. Derrida's sentence is, I trust, meant not solely but irreducibly to be comic, to invoke ironically various precisions leading to dead ends. I'm unsure whether Derrida takes himself to be accepting Schlegel's question or to be mocking or otherwise interpreting it, or all these together. Schlegel is speaking out of the ironic perception that while called upon to communicate something about his writing, Schlegel says he's writing against the charge that his Athenaeum fragments are unintelligible. It is he himself who is supplying the writing that is called incomprehensible or non-understandable. But then this is philosophy's undying task, to show that the self-imprisoned human understanding is capable of self-arrest, self-reflection, self-overcoming. Derrida had accepted an invitation to present what is called a communication to an academic assembly. And he knew, as it were, in advance, that what he will say will almost certainly not be found to communicate anyway if he has anything to do with it. But for me, Derrida's fun, however much I may appreciate the fluency and the invention, goes philosophically sour. The insinuation in his opening question, is it certain, uh, and so forth, uh, invites us to imagine that someone or other perhaps ourselves, uh, or maybe everyone in general, or the history of philosophy, or the West, at least sometimes, actually thinks or takes it for certain that the concept is supposed to be our concept of communication, or the concept that corresponds to the word communication, let's be careful, is in fact unique, univocal, controllable, transmittable. What is? What would it mean? And are we then to examine this assumption or assumption uh, or presumption or prejudice or fantasy or doctrine or hypothesis in all seriousness and then be protected against it or weaned from it? Why would we wish this distance or accept it? Derrida's insinuating question renders the assumption ridiculous, anyway bewildering. Austin would think it no more intelligible to be protected against the question, is it certain that to the word communication and so forth and so on has all those characteristics that nothing has? Uh, is it more certain to be, uh, uh, to be protected against the question than to be asked the question, is it certain? And Wittgenstein, who in some eerily related sense does think that we harbor or that in philosophy we do contort ourselves into such thoughts about our concepts, for example, that every word stands for an object that is its fixed meaning, never spares attention in tracing each beckoning path he finds along which we track our streaks of madness. He asks us to recognize, to be in a position to question the apparent question of, let's say, absolute understanding. Anything less would not be taking the implicit paranoia of the question, is communication actually possible with seriousness? With the very seriousness that Derrida attempts to make Austin appear ridiculous for invoking. The seriousness, namely, that actually wants an answer. A seriousness that requires genuine playfulness to express a state like, but not like, hysteria. 
And of course, Wittgenstein can be said to write with a continuous recognition that he's not being understood, perpetually constructing and leveling questions for himself that miss his point or his stance, and which each time we may recognize ourselves as tempted to ask, nevertheless. Perhaps the experience of Austin's puns, as they're all corny, um, it's better to split hairs than to start them, is one. Uh, or again, he speaks of myth-eaten theories. Is that common? Is that English now, to have myth-eaten theories? Um, anyway, if it is, uh, Austin's partly responsible, I think. Um, uh, and uh, the tasks of Wittgenstein's ironic encounters. But if you, these are the... Uh, 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 one, uh, capturing an experience that uh, uh, otherwise unavailable. Uh, here is Wittgenstein. But if you are certain, isn't it that you're shutting your eyes in face of doubt? Still, Wittgenstein, they are shut. These things have left me so often immune to Derrida's brands of play. The classical analytical philosophers, Russell, Carnap, Ayer, and so forth, preceding Austin and the Wittgenstein of the investigations, did not uh, preoccupy themselves professionally uh, with, for example, one's relation to one's power of speech or with speech as confrontation, hence with the ineluctable moral fact, ineluctably oral moral fact of assertion, with my manifesting my standing in disturbing the world with each of my words, nor with my mortality, my knowledge that I'm finite, that my words must in each prompting to utterance, come to or be brought to an end with no authority beyond myself. This cannot be a matter merely of style any more than it is a mere matter of style that this mode of analytical philosophy does not habitually veer towards a serious interest in theological or psychological or literary registers of speaking. Break. I take Emerson in self-reliance to be characterizing human understanding when he says, I stand here for humanity, as well as when Emerson says, I follow the standard of the true man. To stand for something is to represent it, and I do not doubt that Emerson is simultaneously invoking the idea of standing something, that is, bearing it, bearing up under a burden. Then the implication is that for me to understand humanity is to bear up under my comprehension and consideration, under the weight of my representation of humanity, under the way, for example, I am whatever I may said to be, be said to be, the way I am a father, a grandfather, a son, an American, a depressed patriot, a Jew, a white man, a professor, knock-kneed, bald, divorced, remarried, temperamentally inclined to both disappointment and to joy, to solitude and to love, to high and major art, as well as to minor and low to scorn and forbearance. To know another is hence to know not a thing they are, but all the ways in which they are what they simultaneously or successively are, or partially are, or deny that they are. But why is this knowledge to be born, something to be stood like pain, or like one's ground, or perhaps like the deepest pleasure? My other is the sign of responsibility, the witness of my integrity, or the threat to it. The reminder that I am not and that I am alone, that break bread together as we may, we will sleep in our own dreams and perhaps never awaken fully. I may have to struggle against the other's understanding of me 
or his or her wish or demand to understand me without knowing much about my ways. Which is not to say that I want the other to understand me the way I understand myself. I may not understand myself as well as the other. I him or he me or her. Then I accept his acknowledgement, could I, that they are ignorant of me. They may accomplish this quite readily by not caring about me. No, but I mean accept their acknowledgement that I am a mystery to them. What would show this? You can see I'm mocking what philosophers call the knowledge of the other um, and, uh, and uh, mocking sometimes uh, the, the gestures miss. But the, I hope the general idea confronting this is the experience of 100,003 uh, evenings reading through boring descriptions of what it's like to know another person that have absolutely nothing to do with what it's like to know another person on any account. <laughs> One of the last fragments in Blanchot, don't tell my teachers that. They're all dead, so I, I'm, I'm safe. <laughs> One of the last fragments in Blanchot's The Writing of the Disaster is Learn to Think in Pain. The italics are Blanchot's. Some ten years ago in Emerson's Constitutional Amending, I claimed that Emerson's essay, Fate, written in the year of the Fugitive Slave Act, 1850, should be read as an essay on freedom and as bearing in each sentence the pain of the knowledge of slavery. Not exactly as Walt Whitman hears it, bears it. Claims, in a sense, to share the knowledge, but as a writer and thinker bears it, uh, who feels himself or herself at each point. Uh, implicating himself in keeping the institution of slavery intact because helpless to act specifically to annul it. It is by his silence that he expresses his pain. In a sense, holds back the expression, bears the pain. I say there that Emerson has invented the tragic essay and the idea of uh, writing essays in the face of the existence of slavery is a way I read some of Emerson's. Fate, in particular, is one of them in that way. How, if held back, is the suffering to be known? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> How is any withheld passion? at any time. Do we consider that we can no longer tell the difference between holding something in and having nothing inside? More urgently, why is pain's expression held back? And why is it pain that philosophers always want to know whether they know? Do they want to know? Evidently, there's a question about claiming the right to it, to express it. There may be, let's call it, a spiritual vulgarity in expressing pain at the pain of others. Here the pain of injustice, take today's global poverty or mass displacement of persons as versions of slavery. Unless it takes you over entirely, which may manifest itself by silencing you or rendering you incoherent. Emerson will come to this in his violent denunciation of Daniel Webster's support of the Fugitive Slave Act and in Emerson's praise of John Brown's murderousness. But here, in the irreplaceable essay, Fate, Emerson speaks as a philosopher thinking, declaring that thinking can no longer go on without thinking of the disaster of slavery, which commits him 
to showing that our conditions, which is to say all our shared words, are indeed those of slavery, that the air we breathe in and out is pervaded by thoughts of freedom, hence of slavery, that these thoughts can no longer be controlled. And when open slavery is passed, injustice will take further forms. And when these are passed, our separateness or our mortality will remain. Here the spiritual vulgarity of expressing my pain over the condition, this condition is not that I lack the right, but that, everyone, but that everyone has and must assume the same right. So it comes to the question, what gives one the right to single oneself out and to open one's mouth here in all seriousness? And then this is the question of philosophy as it presents itself most urgently to me, the source of the right to speak for what we all know, for what we cannot just not know. Break. One of Blanchot's entries on death, we are approaching uh, a place of pause. One of Blanchot's entries on death speaks of the awkwardness in dying. Within days of coming across his finding this worth saying, namely in one of my three o'clock in the morning searches on television, uh, having faced the fact of insomnia, too wakeful for sleep and too sleepy for work, wary of taking a sleeping pill, having resorted to that the previous couple of nights and tired of the written word, I have been grateful in those 3 a.m. searches uh, to find airings of one or another early Charlie Chan movie featuring Warner Oland as the master. I hope you know some of those. Uh, perfect for the point. Or perhaps a 30s gangster film with Humphrey Bogart as the bad guy. Or Claude Rains as the invisible man. And on one occasion, uh, just the last half hour of an inferior Hitchcock saboteur. saboteur excuse me. Uh, the saboteur uh, it, it suited my half mood perfectly. These were all recent off-hour offerings from the Boston Movie Channel's classic. Uh, but just about any of its treasures might in that mood be fine company. Little instances, and sometimes big, of what I had missed early in my life, or reminders of what I had not missed. On one such memorable pre-dawn excursion, I came upon Howard Hawks' Only Angels Have Wings, as it was beginning, made in 1939, but looking earlier, in the reverse way that Hawks' is Bringing Up Baby, made in 1936, looks later. While I recalled having viewed Only Angels Have Wings uh, twice, uh, more recently, I have never been moved to ask for its particular uh, contribution to the work of Hawks or of that of the writer Jules Firthman or indeed the work of Cary Grant or of Jean Arthur uh, or of that of the then little-known uh, Rita Hayworth who has a very small part in the film. The film is uh, self-evidently not up to the best work of any of these talents. Uh, for example, to Firthman's myth mythical setting uh, for Howard Hawks, uh, To Have and Have Not. Uh, five years earlier. This later film, so far as I've made myself recall or check, pays detailed attention to the Hemingway material in the book with the title, To Have and Have Not. Uh, chiefly, and pays attention to the book, chiefly in the choreography of the early gunfight outside the bar in and around which the action centers, uh, which Hemingway describes in loving detail. But Hawks could have done that without Firthman's screenplay. One or other of them chose to repeat from Only Angels Have Wings a perfect Hemingway gesture in which one of a pair of destined uh, intimates suddenly strikes a match 
to startle the other away from throwing a punch across the room, um, an unwise or unnecessary punch, however richly deserved, at a cheating newcomer. The gesture elegantly manifests a clear knowledge of, and I hope that reminds you of something, the gesture elegantly manifests a clear knowledge of and the knowledge of the justice of the other's perception and passion, and it affects a rational correction without assertion, or rather without denial, without moralism, by modifying an encounter rather than hindering it. Uh, seems to me, yes, a marvelously tactful gesture, just striking suddenly the match. In the earlier uh, uh, film, Cary Grant strikes a match whose flaring startles and deflects Thomas Mitchell from throwing the punch. In the later film, uh, To Have and Have Not, Lauren Bacall uses the gesture to deflect Humphrey Bogart. In the earlier film, the piece of business is fine, uh, uh, fine enough, but it's only one of a number of ways in which the human world can show tact in distress, miniature displays of grace under pressure, a form of mutual respect that rational society depends upon. In the later film, Bagal's gesture, Bacall's gesture, excuse me, is shockingly, voluptuously pleasurable to ponder, a movement not exactly arising from intimacy so much as establishing intimacy, requiring a leap of understanding that assumes the standing to intervene in the absence of the standing yet to say anything, acknowledging that standing is the essential in moral confrontation, a form of trust or mutual respect before words that love and community depend upon. I had hitherto always passed by the title phrase to have and have not, with a momentary qualm that I allowed to fade, vaguely satisfying myself that the sense is well enough given in the idea of society divided between haves and have-nots. But this time I sat still long enough to attract the full sound of the phrase, especially an air of threat in and have-not. Bearing in mind that Hemingway early uh, wanted the titles of his novels to refer to fragments or moments of imperishable writing, for whom the bell tolls, of course, to uh, one of John Donne's meditations, uh, the sun also rises to Ecclesiastes. The fragment for to have and have not come to think of it steadily enough is right there uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 where St. Paul declares, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. I am familiarly to myself not a little anxious at the thought that this connection is by now between St. Paul and, and, uh, and um, Hemingway. Um, uh, obvious, uh, common knowledge, so that I've only been uh, pretentiously obvious and all but unforgivable tactlessness in Hemingway's code. But how can having and having not bear upon Hemingway's idea of human existence, bear so strongly that not having something reveals you as nothing, not to be counted among humankind. Yet isn't it Hemingway's issue that the ability to stake one's existence confers the right to existence, the knowledge that you play your hand for life and death stakes without knowing whether you have or have not the courage and the wisdom and the perception and the passion and the compassion and the luck to come through well in your own eyes, 
the readiness to discover that you are something or nothing, and the power to judge a world which makes the odds wrong. This will perhaps manifest itself in relations Hemingway depicts between men and women that some readers will now find archaic, associated too much with an outdated morality of honor to warrant a full seriousness of attention, to demand a privacy that implies a violence of silence, a contempt for words, and for awkwardness that betrays a certain lack of, let's say, humanity, amounting to a kind of romantic misanthropy. Since the ease of this view seems to me incompatible with the touch and aspiration of Hemingway's language, I should say one another word about the philosophical depth I understand in what I've described as Hemingway's contempt for the tactlessness, even tastelessness, of asserting the obvious. A great question for ordinary language philosophy, of course. It is the depth that Wittgenstein expresses, for example, in the hundreds of fragments collected in Uncertainty, where he works to depict, let me say, the pang of excess in uh, a philosopher's uh, misuse of the assertion, I know. The problem is not for him that I never know, but something like the reverse. The problem is that... The problem is, yes, that, uh, that I never know, but something like the reverse. Wittgenstein asserts, my life shows that I know or I'm certain that there is a chair over there or a door and so on. Still Wittgenstein, I tell a friend, for example, take that chair over there, shut the door, so on, so on. Then the difficult implication is, uh, this is now me, the difficult implication is that if I did utter the words, I know I exist I know that chair is there. If I did utter the words, I would be shouldering my words aside, distancing myself from myself, foregoing the authorship of my life. When the woman in Hemingway's story that takes its title from her utterance, announcing that hills are like white elephants, the title of a Hemingway short story, perhaps attractively unobvious to say, under certain circumstances, okay to say, but effectively poisoned, to say, in other circumstances, she expresses and causes the breaking of false intimacy with the man to whom it is addressed. This in her subsequent plea to the man, uh, would you please, 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 please stop talking, she says, uh, are instances uh, of what philosophers shield themselves from in breaking their intimacy with the world, which something tells them is a false intimacy that has to be repaired. Uh, their attempts to explain something clear themselves of it when they have no explanation and cannot bear their own silence. As if to take a favorite uh, example of Austin's, they're conceding that while we might not see the world directly, we see it indirectly. We can say, Austin would say, that what philosophers assert in such cases is precisely nothing. Some philosophers are content to draw that conclusion. Others, as I find in Wittgenstein, prompt us to consider why being moved to speak in emptiness is a condition that the access of language chronically causes in those creatures whose life form is determined by language and the meaningfulness of gesture, by the fate of these possessions, by the perpetual struggle against the temptation, adapting a phrase with which Nietzsche concludes the genealogy of morals, to speak in emptiness rather than to suffer being empty of speech. So Nietzsche says, 
For me, the issue dramatized in skepticism is to determine the claim to the right to speak, which is to say to claim attention, recognition, which includes the right to single out the one or the many whom you call upon. I mean this to strike a note fundamental to the dream of democracy as well as to philosophy. The Hawks-Firthman film... Sorry. A couple of minutes. It came to mind out of Blanchot's writing the following. Blanchot writes, The experience of dying. This also means awkwardness in dying. Dying is someone would who has not learned how or who has missed his classes. Unquote. In the film, Cary Grant is standing over Thomas Mitchell, who has been lifted out of his crashed airplane and has been carried inside the pilot's living quarters to be laid on a table. And when Grant tells him that his neck has been broken, Mitchell concludes thoughtfully, uh, objectively, then this is the end, he says. Mitchell rallies nervously, aware of the other pilots are present, uh, having seen him being taken out of the crashed plane. Get that bunch out of here, Mitchell says to Cary Grant. After Grant has ushered them out, Mitchell continues, it's just that I don't want anyone to watch. Blanchot recurrently speaking of, speaks of our exposure and abjection in the face of the other. Watch, in English, can bear all the weight philosophy can hope to give to exposure, as in, watch with me. Words famously repeated in what was called, we call, what we've seen, what we've read as, the place called Gethsemane. Watch with me. I imagine that in charmingly mocking the interpretation of the inexperience of dying as awkwardness, as if dying is something to be prepared for, like a dance step, Blanchot wishes to capture something of the infantilization that dying may impose. I'm not exactly proposing that adolescent male Americans were once upon a time to learn from quite good movies what philosophically inclined grown-ups may learn from their peers, namely how to respond to the imminent loss of companionability, to take farewell. I'm being impressed by the effort, however awkward, to conceive words that can be said, said without awkwardness in the face of the dying. For example, us. Blanchot is one, me first. Blanchot is one who asserts explicitly that living is dying. This is something I keep expecting of the exercise of philosophy. To end, Grant says to uh, Mitchell, uh, asks him, um, whom he calls, a man he calls the kid, uh, whether he wants him to leave also, because all the pilots have now left, and it's just the two of them uh, in the cabin. Seeing that the answer is yes, Grant says, So long, kid. So long, the kid replies. The camera cuts to Grant pulling the door behind him as he walks out of the flimsy little cabin. Standing at the top of its small rise of steps, he seems as expressionless as his final words had been. I think of how often I've wondered at Cary Grant's ability, outside his comic roles, and often inside them, to deliver a line with the flatness of a line in a Beckett play, and elicit full conviction in his viewer or watcher. It's a remarkable understanding of the power of film 
to raise the question of our knowledge of, let's say, the appropriateness of expression to what is expressed, the undying topic of art, um, an essential of the procedures of philosophizing out of ordinary speech. We can read nothing in this moment from Grant's extraordinary face except the unimpeded, exorbitant demands it imposes upon us from a time and a place always beyond us. Thank you. Thank you for your inspiration. Um, I came here um, as a foreign scholar and grappling with the English language to write my books, to write my proposals. And thank you for such wonderful words um, because they inspire me to grapple with the language knowing that it's not only me as a foreigner who struggles with that, but also you as an American who masters the English language. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I thank you again. And good luck. Thank you, President Broadhead, for mentioning Kierkegaard. That's my field. I wondered, uh, you said Wittgenstein didn't read much, and yet he had something to say on Kierkegaard. What, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, have, I'm missing something you said. Wittgenstein. Well, I think Mr. Broadhead, you said Wittgenstein uh, didn't read much or never finished reading something. And I was wondering what he might have read of Kierkegaard's. Just, just saying how uh, hard it is to imagine Wittgenstein reading really through any book all the way, let alone through... Well, I won't put it that way, but Kierkegaard in that way would be no different. That is Wittgenstein's idea of reading. Uh, at least, uh, I don't, I'd never met Wittgenstein, and people had never, just, never told me anything about how he read or what he read. I mean, we know some things from, from biographies. But uh, my, my sense of him is that he would be stopped at the first paragraph of anything. Um, and, uh, as, and I think that's, in, in a certain way, unless you make a fetish of it, a very good thing. I think one ought to have to struggle to go on. Even if it's the Bible. Even if you've heard it before. Uh, you had to, and I don't mean, it's, that's not just a matter of reading against the grain. It's a matter of reading enough. Um, I give you my impression. That's all. I don't really know. Professor Kavet, in the, in the framing of your opening remarks, you spoke three or four times of an agreement that you had made with yourself. Yeah. And I was puzzled by the phrase and wondering... You might very well be. I invite you to, to speak yeah. a little bit more about what it would mean to have an agreement with oneself. An agreement with oneself. Uh, I used that as another way of trying to capture the sense uh, of what I called my pre-compositional decision. Um, and uh, 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 namely, well, there were two of them. One was to really uh, get at the earliest memories I could, which the first uh, 100 or 150 pages of the, of the thing does. Uh, and the other was, uh, had to do with um, uh, writing each day and dating it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it seemed to me like an agreement. That is, uh, I... I constantly was tempted to infringe the, uh, that idea. I wanted, to, I wanted to be faithful to it. I, you know, ask me why. 
it, got, it kept me going, and it kept me going long enough, namely for 14 months, so that I actually got a sketch of the thing. Uh, but in fact, sometimes I would start writing a bit mechanically, and I would say, I know what's wrong with this. Uh, I'm really not in it, and there's something else I would much rather be writing. So to remind myself uh, of what I was doing is a kind of sign. It's, it seems to me part of the grammar of, of, of agreeing, uh, which is why I put it that slightly odd way, but you're right to pick me up on it. To, th- to thank Stanley Cavell for this amazing lecture. Uh, it's, for me, it was a very moving talk that I think I need to think about, uh, dream about, stay awake with, turn on the television about in the middle of the <laughs> night so that we can have this chance to really talk about it and anything else we want to discuss with Stanley Cavell tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock in the Franklin Center in room 240, where he has graciously agreed to discuss any aspect of any of his writings. (laughs) So I expect we will be going on for about 8 to 10 hours, and we'll take it from there. But actually, it's 10 o'clock to about 12 o'clock tomorrow morning. And... um, this was a genuinely moving event for me, and I'm so grateful you came thank here. You, thank you, Toro. And we'll and continue thank all of you, tomorrow. Toro. Thank Here's you. Tomorrow. Thank you.